This is episode 158 of That Shakespeare Life. Today's episode is brought to you by Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare is the membership arm of That Shakespeare Life that offers you monthly digital history activity kits that let you try at home the history you learn about on the show. They work like science labs for history. Stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Paul Menzer, professor of Shakespeare performance at Mary Bowen University and author of Anecdotal Shakespeare, A New Performance History. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. So we did find binding stones. These are large circular sandstone blocks with cut marks and grooves from actually grinding blades was happening in fairly close proximity to the site. So that evidence is there, and this was becoming an increasingly important industry during Shakespeare's time in Birmingham, certainly, anyway. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Bullring Market in Birmingham, England, was first known as corn cheaping because in the 12th century, which is when we have the first reference to corn cheaping, it was used as a corn market. Corn cheaping had an iron ring set up on a grassy section of corn cheaping that was used as a bull baiting arena where bulls who had been selected for slaughter would be tied and baited for entertainment before being processed into meat. That's where the name Bullring Market comes from. Today, in the 21st century, Bullring Market is still being used as an open-air market, selling fish, meat, poultry, exotic vegetables, and even household supplies. But how did the market get from the 12th century to today, and why has the original purpose survived so many centuries? Headland Archaeology discovered some answers about the history of Bullring Market when they conducted an archaeological dig at Biorma Quarter, close to Bullring Market. Today, our guest, Steve Thompson, lead archaeologist for this project, is here today to share with us what they found underneath the ground at Bullring Market, and what that tells us about how the space was being used during Shakespeare's lifetime. Steve has been involved in commercial archaeology since 1999, with extensive experience of urban, greenfield, and wetland sites in a variety of sectors, from housing developments to large infrastructure projects such as Hunterson Nuclear Power Station and Heathrow Terminal 5. Steve joined Headland Archaeology in 2014, directing one of the excavations on the 52-kilometer Aberdeen Western Peripheral Route Project. He is now based at the Midlands and West office in Hereford. Steve joins us today to discuss the recent excavation project of Headland Archaeology, the Bullring Market, where they found items that date back to Shakespeare's lifetime. Find more about Steve and Headland Archaeology in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the show. Good to be here, Cassidy. Nice to meet you. Nice to be here. Did you find evidence of bulls having been kept at Bullring Market for bull baiting? The simple answer to that one is no, I must admit. It's, it's kind of an indirect piece of evidence. What we actually found were horn cores. These are just the inner core of horns from slaughtered animals. Where we were excavating is to the 
north of Uring, most immediately adjacent to the north. And the connection would be that the market was there, probably trading in the animals, slaughtering them, but then using them for the processes. The actual whether bulls were being baited or not, historically it's documented that this occurs, but we don't have any direct evidence for that itself. Finding bullhorns indicates that the area may have been used to slaughter bulls, as you mentioned. But Steve, yeah. were there also evidence of other industrial activities like leather making or other things you might use bulls for in this way? Most certainly, yeah. The, the horn cores are good evidence of industry. There are several different things that can come from that. And the proximity to the bull ring gives us the link with these things. One is directly the processing of the bull horns. So the horn core is the inner part. Actually remove the horn itself. That can be used for making things like drinking vessels, a decorative bone for inlaying on wooden artifacts and so on. We still see that today uh, as a process and an industrial process. Also the tanning industry, leather tanning, the hides are likely to be processed there as well. So if you have slaughtering the animals within that proximity, within the vicinity in the area, there's no reason why you wouldn't utilize those kind of readily available raw materials with a very close association to the site where we were working. Over and above bone working, there was other evidence on the site for some fairly significant uh, industry generally. Another thing that we came across were bits with waste refuse of copper alloy crucibles for melting and preparing of copper alloys and ultimately producing different artifacts, tools potentially with that. Grinding stones, again, iron and the steel, and not steel at that time, it's iron working. The earlier days was a very big industry in Birmingham itself. And we have the evidence of grinding stones, which were used for sharpening blades that's turned up on the site as well. Another interesting little thing were fish pond. There were two of these located on the site. We have evidence of both of those where they're producing fish, these feeding the local population. I think you hit the nail on the head with leather and the tanning industry. That's probably one of the bigger aspects of what was going on around that area. And other excavations of vicinity have confirmed that as well. One article about the dig in Birmingham Live indicates that cattle bones dating back 200 to 300 years were uncovered due in part to the presence of organic vegetation that helped preserve these bones. Steve, 200 to 300 years ago post-dates Shakespeare by about a century. However, would cattle have also been at Bullring Market for Shakespeare's lifetime? And does the evidence you found at the dig site support that? It's an interesting one. With a further phase of excavation still to come, in uh, one area of the site which conjoins with the part that we've done. We have limited evidence at the moment of dating to the 16th and 17th century, around Shakespeare's time. We can't confirm that that's from sealed contexts. It may be redeposited on the site. Certainly there was a market in Birmingham during that period in time. Likelihood is that 
metal was being traded. Wool, corn, they were very big and important industries within Birmingham from the medieval period as well. So the chances are, yes, that that process was still going on. And we've yet to get absolute dating regarding where the horn cores have arrived from and what period and time they derive from. The moment artifactually, it suggests they're coming into the 18th century. We can't be 100% certain of that. That will start to come together at the analysis stage of the project, which is after this next phase of excavation, potentially 12 months down the line before we really know these kind of answers. Certainly the pottery is there that dates from around Shakespeare's time period, the chronological window. How that's going to relate to the industry we see on site, we still don't know yet. Many of the artifacts you've uncovered, like the bullhorns, are remarkably well-preserved. What is it about the site that means the artifacts have been able to last this long without decomposing? This is a really interesting one in that the geology of the area is quite an acidic sand. And you would never expect this kind of preservation a lot of wooden artifacts, for example, survive wooden structural elements of timberline drains and various cisterns and tanks. Something quirky has happened. A fine layer of clay has developed over the sand and created a condition where the water won't permeate through the sands. So this has allowed an organic build-up material, meadow silts, effectively water meadow area, develop. And that has left a lot of these wooden artifacts in waterlogged conditions, aerobic, perfect for their preservation. There's been a slow deterioration. Some of the wood isn't in the best condition. Preservation generally, particularly for an urban site. And that's given us an additional insight we normally wouldn't expect within a major city environment. Normally, that would all be truncated away or have decayed over the years. So it's it's quite a quirky thing. This has happened and survived in this area. There have been a lot of water issues in the area of the dig site, and even Victorian reservoirs uncovered that created a clean water system for the late 19th century. Steve, with this much water underground in that area, would the original site have contained a city conduit like we think of the Great Conduit in London? Nothing on that scale. In Birmingham. The Birmingham that we know of from historical records is a very, very small town by comparison. If you look at population in the 1520s, it's estimated around a thousand people. By 1650, we're up to something like 5,000 people. The town is developing and becoming a lot bigger. At 1801, we're up to 84,000 people. So it's it's a rapid increase from the 16th century onwards. The land that we were excavating on, part of that, as I said, is what's known as the Lord's Lake Meadows. And there are state maps that indicate there are a lot of watercourses running through that area. Now, a ditch was excavated there in the medieval period, which is called the Hersham Ditch. It's a 
like 78 meters wide at least. And this channeled a lot of the water and the drainage. But ostensibly, it was to keep the peasants off of the Lord's land. And it also was then used to manage water that constantly ran through a ditch over a period of time. We also uncovered a medieval ditch dating probably to the 1200s, which was attempting to drain the land a little at that period as well. So it's the water management really comes into play around the time when the town is rapidly developing as a later period of time. There are wells that are sunk in or around that area immediately adjacent to the site. There's a street that's called Well Lane. Historically, there were wells there as well. But this happens as the town starts developing, we believe, sort of in the 1700s. That's when these kind of things come into play. But certainly nothing is on the scale of the Great Conduit of London, fortunately. One human artifact uncovered at Biorma Corner was a button that fell into a lime slaking pit. Steve, explain for the uninitiated what a lime slaking pit is and why would a button be found inside one? This, this is something I had to look up myself as well. As, as a field worker, we tend to be generalists and you learn the bits of specialism as you go along. The lime was an important part of the tanning process. Effectively, lime is used to remove the fur or the hair and any other associated nasties from the hides that are originally ready for leather tanning. So lime comes in different forms. Shell, obviously, pure calcium carbonate, very good. Limestone as well. What people would do is heat up limestone, potentially, in, in one instance, create a calcium carbonate. The other one is to take the shell, heat that up, and you create a much purer drug, impurities in limestone. So that you then heat up, dry it out, you add to that water. This is originally the heated calcium carbonate. It's called quicklime. You add to that water, and this is where these lime slaking come in. That's the process, adding water to it. A small amount of water will allow you to get a very fine powder of lime. That can be used at your leisure, but it can go off. The other one is by putting a little bit of water. You create a lime putty, which can be maintained and kept. You then add that to the hides, that clears the fur. From there, lime goes out of the process. It becomes a whole series of nasties relative to tanning leather, uh, urine, dog's feces, collected, left for months. So it's a fairly putrid atmosphere. Another one that's used quite often in tanning is bark. So the tannins from the bark help working the leather. And we certainly have evidence of bark being used as part of the leather tanning process. So we have lime slaking at and the tanning directly evidence where they would set material to cure these or to prepare the hides, tan the hides. That's lime slaking. As for a button getting into a lime pit, I just think of some chap who hasn't really switched on his buttons quite properly and he's busy doing his lime slaking and it's dropped out. You're not going to put your hand back in there to get it, unfortunately. So it's uh, 
Yeah, just one of those things. You can imagine the people actually doing the job when you find these small artifacts, trying to connect with the human beings rather than just physical remains. What other kinds of human artifacts did you find that were left by the individual people who were working in this space? Well, there's a few things. Primarily, it's all industrial evidence that we were coming across some remnants of industrial evidence. Some leather footwear uh, came to light. It's not manufactured. These look like waste and debris that were thrown. There were shoe soles from adults, but also children's small soles, uh, leather. They were quite interesting. Also, clay tobacco pipes, very common. And of course, they were a notable introduction to this country from the North Americas. From, uh, from your country as well, back in the later 1500s. And the great thing about clay tobacco pipes is they're very closely datable. One of the interesting things is the, the bore that runs through the long stem, small hole, that narrows over time. So they're very wide bored in the early pipes, narrower bore we get through into the later 1700s and the 1800s because taxation starting to increase on the tobacco even back then so people made the the bore of the pipe smaller to get a longer smoke for their money they're they're a very personal touch and their cigarette ends of 300 years 400 years of activity on the site and they were numerous on the on the site particularly from the later Victorian period. We do have some early bulls, which will date in the 1600s as well. There are several streets near Bjormer Corner that include the name Mill, suggesting that there was at one point a mill for grinding grain or perhaps grinding lime here at Bullring Market. Steve, did your dig uncover any artifacts that suggest a mill had been held there? And would it have been there for Shakespeare's lifetime? We do know that the mill was associated with the Lord's Manor to the south of the site, and Old Mill Lane runs through that area. The industry that was very, very important to Birmingham in its early development, predating Shakespeare, was the wool industry. And there would well have been woolen mills associated with the town at that point. So mills could have related to wool industry as much as grinding. Also, the bullring market originally was known as the corn cheap as a marketplace as well. So the sale of agricultural produce, probably the processing on some scale of corn went on. We do know then that through Shakespeare's time, there was no lordship in the town. That had gone. There was no corporation. So this gave people more of social freedom and more freedom with their industry as well. This allowed the expansion of a lot of the industry through the time Shakespeare was alive. This is where the iron industry comes in in a big, important way. Birmingham started trading in armaments, blades primarily, and was rivaling London in terms of its production during that period. A lot of the mills in the area became sites for grinding of weapons, blades, knives, even nails. Nailers are mentioned quite 
frequently in the historical documents. Uh, John Leland, an antiquarian, visited the town in 1538, dating Shakespeare some way, but not that far. And he mentions at that time there were an awful lot of smithies within the town making iron artifacts. So we did find grinding stones. These are large circular sandstone blocks with cut marks and grooves from actually grinding blades. That was happening in fairly close proximity to the site. There's even evidence of a foundry uh, much later through the 1700s into the 1800s, almost adjacent that we were excavating as well. So that evidence is there, and this was becoming an increasingly important industry during Shakespeare's time in Birmingham, so anyway. The dig phase one has just been completed at Biorma Corner, mm. but Steve, what is Headland looking to do to explore the rest of Bullring Market? Ah, well, the way that the industry works here is it's all based around the planning process. So somebody has to want to build something first. And then it becomes a case of being in a tender to win a contract. So we don't have the luxury of being able to choose where we want to excavate, unfortunately. It's all based on the commercial aspects of things. However, the phase two part of the excavation is to go ahead. Uh, that's meant to be scheduled for summer of this year. We're looking forward to that one. Because there are a lot of questions, some we've talked about today, this kind of Cistercian pottery, which dates to the late 1500s, 1600s, very much the time period that you look into. And we don't know precisely why that's there. There's positively dating features which are hiding under the next bit of ground that we need to dig. So, yeah, you're kind of tied in terms of having a choice, looking forward to the second phase of the excavation and then joining that all together with other excavations from within Birmingham and around the town centre, see what kind of additional information we can add to the picture of the development of Birmingham. It sounds exciting. I can't wait to see what you find. I know, Steve, that we would love to explore more about the tanning industry in Birmingham and these artifacts and bullring market. What are some books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? There are three uh, books that I suggested. I think one is uh, Birmingham, The Hidden History by Mike Hodder. Mike Hodder was actually involved in the project as a consultant, and he knows the history the archaeology of Birmingham inside out. So that's my part of the Birmingham, the hidden history, 2004, that one was published. Another good is Chris Upton's history of Birmingham as well, which really explores the whole development of the time with the information that we know is present. And I thought that given it's formed such a focus around the area, that leather itself, history, techniques, Projects at the Tanning by Josephine Barb. Uh, she's from the University of Munich, I think. It certainly is a German university, published in 2013 by uh, Schiffer Publishing as well. So Josephine Barb, and that would give a really good background insight to how the tanning process works. More importantly, as well, in terms of very specific parts of it. There is a website that's called the ADS, 
and this is the Archaeology Data Service, which I think I forwarded the, um, the link, which you can make available to the listeners. Excavation reports tend to end up with what we call gray literature. Listening to a book format. Well, summary goes into a journal, not an actual book of the excavations. So these excavation reports live on the ADS and it's open access. Anybody can do this. You don't need to sign up and just search for excavations in Birmingham and it would start to give you the picture. You could even search by time period as well, which you could focus in on information relative to Shakespeare's lifetime as well. Not just, not just Birmingham, it's the whole of the United Kingdom. That is an amazing resource. We will make sure to link to that and the books that you've recommended in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure that you stay tuned after the episode to hear the link for where to find that. Now, Steve, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah, I've never been much of one for reading fiction. If I could push it, I'd probably like to take something like the Encyclopedia Britannica on the basis that even as a child, encyclopedias absolutely riveted me and looking up some information, finding out bits and pieces. If somebody mentions something, I can always go and look at them. So if I was stuck there on my own, I'd be able to think about all the things I didn't know and maybe learn something. That sounds like an excellent choice. You'd be well set up on your deserted island for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, at the moment, I'm dealing with a lot of post-excavation reporting. Part of it, an interim report for the Dorma project. I have an interesting Roman period site from the south of England and uh, near Bristol, the city there. It's all Roman occupation, and I have a report to write on that one as well. But the nature of the way that we work uh, with commercial archaeology and tendering, we can be sent anywhere in the country working on excavations. It's all largely project-driven. England are very, very busy at the moment. We have a lot of work with the big rail construction project that's going on, a lot of infrastructure projects with roads as in development. Uh, they're the largest private company in the UK dealing with uh, archaeological remains and excavation work. So things are looking very bright at the moment. No idea which will be my next excavation that I'll work on. But certainly there's lots of irons in the fire with the company. Very busy. lot looking good going forward. But in the meantime, I've got my little Roman site to, to deal with and look forward greatly to the next stage of Bjorma, where hopefully we'll answer some of these little questions that we still don't quite have enough detail on yet. Well, I know it's all very exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing what you uncover. And it's wonderful to hear that the future is bright for archaeological investigation and finding out more about the past, which, of course, is something we love here at That Shakespeare Life. Steve Thompson, thank you so much for being here and talking with us about Bullring Market and the discoveries you've made there. It's been wonderful talking with you. It's been a pleasure, Cassidy, and thank you very much for inviting me along. 
Make sure you check out the show notes for today's episode. Links to the resources Steve mentions, including books you can read to learn more and the ADS, where you can explore archaeological dig sites all over the UK, are linked directly in the show notes. So you can find all of these very easily. There's also a free history guide for today's episode, which includes all of the visual aspects that we can't share with you through the audio on the podcast, like archival images, illustrations, photos, and more. So if you would like to follow along with the visual guide for today's topic, be sure to grab your free copy of that history guide at cassidycash.com slash episode 158. That's cassidycash.com slash EP 158. Don't forget that the video version of our show is now streaming on our YouTube channel. You can find that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you would like to have all the video versions of our show, along with documentaries, animated plays, and more, be sure to check out the streaming app for that Shakespeare life. Find that at CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's CassidyCash.com slash experience. Don't forget that the video version of our show is streaming right now on YouTube completely free. You can watch that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you like video content for our show, then make sure you check out the digital streaming app for that Shakespeare life. We have animated plays, bonus interviews, documentaries, and more all packed into the membership area for our show. Members get the digital streaming app along with monthly history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare. Join us inside as we cook, play, and create our way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and download that app at CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.